Japan at the turn of the 20th century. In Nagasaki, the trees are laden with cherry blossom. And a beautiful young geisha's fate is about to be determined by her marriage to a handsome American. This is Puccini's heartbreakingly beautiful exploration of the clash of East and West, Madama Butterfly. I'm Katie Derren. Welcome to the Glyndebourne Podcast. Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton, our leading man, is a United States Navy lieutenant stationed in Japan. His musical introduction couldn't be a more overt reference to his nationality. Blindborn dramaturg Corey Ellison. As an American, of course, it makes me bristle a little bit because it uses our national anthem to tag a very unpleasant character, or at the very best, a very ambiguous character, Lieutenant Pinkerton, not the, the best advertisement for Americans. Chocho-san, or Butterfly, as we'll know her, is our heroine. She's a 15-year-old Japanese girl from a once wealthy family that fell on hard times after her father committed suicide. So she was compelled to become a geisha. This would have been a substantial step down from being samurai class, and Butterfly expresses some embarrassment at this. Now say geisha, and many people immediately think prostitute. But as Fusako Inami from Durham University explains, that's quite wrong. Basically, there are uh, people who are trained in music performance, dancing and things like that. Those who play, for example, music and uh, performance at the social occasions, like parties or political affairs and things like that. And that view is reflected in the Puccini's uh, opera. The union between Pinkerton and Butterfly will be disastrous for her. Puccini sets up the ill-fated meeting of East and West from the opening bars you hear an orchestral prelude with two Japanese themes in it. And the first is an energetic, typical Japanese tune with an anapest rhythm. Da, 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 da. That's broken into by a second theme, which is a figure of four chords sort of an onomatopoetic Nagasaki, Nagasaki. What Puccini does is instead of presenting these tunes in unison, he puts them into a fugue, which is something unheard of in Asian music. It is the most quintessentially Western musical form. So what he's telling us here is that this is Japan... <laughs> But this is a Japan which has been overtaken by Western influence. Butterfly and Pinkerton are set to marry. But for him, it's not the lifelong commitment Butterfly imagines and longs for. Pinkerton buys a house on a 999-year lease. But he's quick to tell his friend, the American consul, Sharpless, that he can back out of both the house sale and his marriage with just one month's notice. Pinkerton's certainly not the typical romantic hero, nor is Butterfly merely a victim. Alexandra Wilson is reader in music at Oxford Brookes University. 
Madam Butterfly is classically in operatic terms a story of thwarted love, but uh, it's unusual because in this case we don't have sympathy for both the male and the female parties. Our, our sympathies are really entirely with Madam Butterfly. When we first encounter Butterfly, she's very much the naive young teenager. I mean, she's basically a child bride. And she's very much cowed when her relatives start to condemn her for, for what she's done, for the decision that, that she's made and converting to Christianity and so on. But we really see her grow in stature across the course of the opera. Before we see Butterfly on stage, we hear her. Her beautiful entrance music is so moving that it immediately forges an emotional connection with the audience. Puccini identifies his heroines first and foremost in their sound, and he wants us to also. We hear this rapturous theme offstage, beginning with a series of rising sequences. Each phrase ends on a whole tone chord, which is something that derives from the Asian pentatonic scale. It just keeps building and building as she comes on stage accompanied by the geishas. The exploration of Eastern values and practices delighted Puccini's European audiences at the turn of the 20th century. Orientalism was all the rage. At the time, an ever closer relationship was emerging between the United States as a major trade and naval power and Japan, which was increasingly opening up to Westerners. From this cultural exchange emerged a literature about relationships between Japanese women and Western men. The French author Pierre Loti published Madame Chrysanthème in 1887, one of the most influential Western works to explore the subject. This was a sort of a semi-autobiographical journal about a French naval officer who was temporarily married to a geisha while he was stationed in Nagasaki. It became a runaway bestseller. And you see the seeds of this trope, which gets taken up by so many playwrights and composers and novelists. But as Fusako Inami explains, it was not a particularly sympathetic view. Japanese women tended to be described as doll, living in a dollhouse, depicted by, for example, Pierre Lotti. Pierre Lotti described Japanese women negatively uh, using, for example, the word monkey or lat and things like that. Puccini was a little bit more sympathetic to Japanese female portrayal compared to some other um, literary figures. A version of this story was created by the American writer John Luther Long and in turn by the playwright David Belasco as a one-act play called Madame Butterfly, a tragedy of Japan. Puccini saw Belasco's play in London in the summer of 1900 and begged him to let him adapt it into an opera. While Madame Butterfly is far from an accurate ethnomusicological rendering of Japan in the early 20th century, Puccini did want to achieve a sympathetic and well-researched portrayal. He was a composer who was absolutely scrupulous about trying to get the atmosphere right for his operas, whether they were set in the far west of America or China in the case of Turandot and Japan in this case. 
he spent some time talking to the Japanese ambassador to Italy at the time and he got them to send recordings, early records of Japanese folk song. But he integrates them very much with his own musical voice. Because Japanese melodies, Asian melodies, are based on a, a different scale than Western melodies, the pentatonic scale, the five-note scale, the fundamental tones there produce different kinds of harmonies. For instance, if you listen to the traditional Japanese song Sakura, it uses a pentatonic scale... Sakura is one of the tunes that Puccini uses over and over again in Madama Butterfly, and we can see how it gives rise to harmonies that sound exotic to us. Sakura, so Sakura means like cherry blossom. So musically, it's very well known, but also thematically, it probably depicts quote-unquote Japanese element because something like cherry blossom, geisha, and Fuji, like Mount Fuji, were most common motif to be depicted in Western context. Although Madama Butterfly is a quintessential Italian opera, when Butterfly and Pinkerton meet, Puccini makes Butterfly's Japanese nationality very clear. For me, a place where she's really at her most Japanese is just a, a little recit portion. She says, nobody wants to confess that they're poor, and it, it has augmented fourths in it, the diabolus in musica, the, the devil in music. This was based on the most famous tune of Madame Sarayako, who was a geisha who became very famous in the West. She toured around and did shows in Italy, and her most famous tune was Echigo Jishi. Butterfly renounces her ancestral gods so that she can be Christian like Pinkerton, and for this, she's cast out by her uncle, who is a Buddhist priest. She's abandoned her Japanese heritage to marry the man she loves. Act One ends with the glorious expression of love between Pinkerton and Butterfly, alone at last on their wedding night. Up until this point, much of what Pinkerton has said to Sharpless suggests he sees the marriage as temporary. But in this moment at least, there's a depth of real feeling between them. Alexandra Wilson again. I think at this point you, you can almost let yourself believe that Pinkerton loves her. Now, he, he clearly doesn't. It's clearly just, you know, an opportunistic relationship and his intention all along is that he'll go back to America and find a, quote, proper bride. But the music, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure we would say it, it's pure love. It's, um, it's very physical, very erotic. Um, this kind of rising, ebbing and flowing passion that gradually builds up over what is a really extended period of time. We can really see the influence of Wagner here. Uh, if we think back to the music in Tristan and Isolde, the way in which he kind of plays with the listener and holds back the harmonic resolution until the very, very, very end. 
It's wedded bliss, but it's fleeting. When we meet Butterfly in Act Two, Pinkerton has returned to America to marry what he calls a real American bride. Butterfly has been raising their child, Sorrow, alone for the last three years. Now they're almost penniless, and yet she still holds out hope that Pinkerton will come back. In the opera's most famous and perhaps most beautiful aria, Un Bel Di, Butterfly clings to the hope that one beautiful day they will spot Pinkerton's ship in the harbour and he will return. It's a tremendous expression of her nobility. It starts out in a, a very understated couple of phrases, and it gradually builds into something very Italianate and very uh, verismo, um, a real expression of, of extreme emotion, of, of love and faith. And it ends in a, in a very Italianate, dramatic way. After three years of watching Butterfly suffer and scour the horizon for Pinkerton's ship, her companion Suzuki is sceptical that Pinkerton will return. Their supportive relationship is the bedrock of Madame Butterfly. One feels that they've been together a very, very long time and that Suzuki is utterly devoted to her, but also really wanting Butterfly to face the music as it were, but they see that indeed his ship has come back into the harbor. And at that moment, Suzuki also shares a ray of hope with Butterfly and they unite their voices in this absolutely rapturous, gorgeous flower duet.
With the house now strewn with flowers, after Butterfly and Suzuki have prepared for Pinkerton's return, Butterfly stays awake all night, watching and waiting. The famous humming chorus strikes up offstage, ending Act Two with a moment of exquisite stillness. Pinkerton and his American wife, Kate, come to tell Butterfly that they wish to take Sorrow away to live with them in America. Butterfly's asleep, and so they ask Suzuki to relay the message. It's a final act of cowardice from Pinkerton. When Butterfly awakes, she sees Kate in her home and immediately knows who she is. She reluctantly agrees that she'll let Sorrow go with his father if Pinkerton will come back in half an hour to get him. Butterfly is stoical, even in this most painful act. As she prays to her ancestral gods, she takes the ceremonial knife with which her father took his life and reads the inscription, who cannot live with honor must die with honor. In the end, she goes back to Samurai's idea where uh, she committed suicide because of dishonor. And it's interesting that Puccini brought that element in, in the end, given that she needed to become geisha from Samurai background because of this decline of the family. So in a way, Puccini is bringing back this Samurai element in at the end. recording of Madama Butterfly you've been listening to in this podcast is courtesy of Warner Classics. Renata Scotto sung the role of Butterfly, with the Orchestra e Coro del Teatro dell'Opera di de Roma, conducted by Sir John Barbiroli. Sakura by Kyoko Okamoto is taken from the recording entitled Sakura, a musical celebration of the cherry blossoms, courtesy of Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. After she kills herself and Pinkerton witnesses that, we hear a Japanese melody in unison. This is incredibly bold and striking on the part of Puccini because what he's saying is no more fugue here. This is a Japanese woman who is proudly Japanese and reclaiming that. And there's something about that that is very inspiring as well as tragic. <laughs>